0: Watch a movie, pretty much any movie about college, and it seems what matters most are the friends you make along the way.
1: Uh, I state your name. I state your name. Do hereby
2: pledge allegiance to the frat.
1: Do hereby pledge allegiance to the frat.
2: Uh, With liberty and fraternity for all. Amen.
0: And while whoever's footing the bill might have different priorities, Research shows strong friendships help college students succeed. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today on the show, from friendships to good teachers, the relationships
1: that lead to college success. And when I tell my story about my upbringing on the shore, some of my students ask me, why did you come back here? We, we want to leave here, you're coming back, why? And I said, it's, be- it's because of you all. This interview originally aired in February of 2020. Our first guest
0: has spent years studying shyness. Madeline Schell is a professor of psychology at the University of Virginia College at Wise. Her recent research looks at college freshmen and what it takes for them to thrive. Madeline, you have studied the experience in middle school and college of shy students. We often talk about whether a small child is shy, and we see that as endearing. But I imagine shyness can also feel hurtful for young people. What do shy people go through?
2: Well, there are a lot of uh, different types of shyness but i think it's important to to distinguish shyness from something like unsociability so some people just would rather be alone and they're perfectly content to be alone in contrast when we talk about shyness we're really talking about those individuals who do want some kind of interaction but they experience a lot of anxiety about the process of making those those connections with other people
0: that's so interesting the difference between introversion and shyness
2: yeah, so um, if we look at young kids, uh, things that we see that kind of signify this are when we're watching kids at recess or something like that, they will stand close to a group of peers and watch what they're doing, but they don't actually initiate interactions. So they kind of struggle to kind of make that bridge and connect with other people, and that, that we call it that onlooking behavior, and that's really characteristic of these shy or anxious, solitary individuals.
0: Do you think we're born with it?
2: Certainly, there's some evidence that uh, in infants, you can actually identify some traits that that predict children engaging in more of this inhibited or, or shy behavior. Uh, so I think there's certainly that, that inborn component. But there's also a lot of evidence that things like parenting can play a big role. So parents who have more shy children uh, who encourage their kids to try to interact with peers and provide support without being overbearing, their shy kids may grow up to be perfectly happy and have very positive social relationships. So while there is this kind of predisposition to shyness, I think that it's very, very malleable depending on the environment.
0: What's a very early sign after birth that a child may have a proclivity to be shy?
2: The the classic studies looking at this, and we call it temperament, when we're really looking at uh, uh, kids, at, at young kids' behaviors, um, was done by Jerome Kagan, and he looked at behavioral inhibition. And uh, in, in infants, when they are exposed to something like a new, very stimulating toy, kids who grow up to be more likely to be shy uh, show a lot of physical activity. Um, And so uh, they'll move their arms and they'll kick their legs. Uh, And the thought is that that kind of indicates that this child is maybe becoming overstimulated by the world. Um, And this later goes on to predict shyness. Does
0: shyness, as children grow older, create anxiety or even depression for them?
2: Yes, so we know that shyness is very strongly linked to anxiety and depression. But again, even as we grow older, we find that relationships, be it parent-child relationships or peer relationships, can really mitigate that. And so if shy individuals have positive relationships, that can really serve to protect them from that depression and anxiety that they might be more prone to.
0: you studied the importance of friendship for shy students in their first year of college. How important is it for them to have a good friend that year?
2: It's very important. And what we found was that shy students did better in terms of they had less anxiety and depression, less loneliness, and more satisfaction with life when they had a really high quality friend there to support them.
0: It was interesting because the study you did was for a school, your own school, where most of the students are from that area. So, in their case, they might often have this good friend from high school, not necessarily someone they had to quickly become fast friends with at school, right?
2: Yeah. So one of the things that we were surprised by in our findings was most students are saying that their very best friend is someone they knew before they came to college. Uh, so it appears that these students are really very much hanging on to their, their high school best friendships. What we found was actually the opposite of what we expected to find. So we thought that students would switch friends because we thought that they would kind of leave their high school best friendships to find new friends uh, in college. That's
0: interesting. What about your own experience? Did you look back on that and think, hey, that was the same for me?
2: Yeah. So, you know, this study was kind of uh, prompted by one of my own experiences. When I enter college, um, I was in a dorm that had kind of pretty isolated floors and the the floor that I was assigned to, I really didn't feel like I connected to anyone. And I became very aware of how much friendship is kind of dependent on your environment and it's kind of luck of the draw who who's on your floor and if you connect with anyone. Um so I ended up actually switching floors and on my new floor I made a lot of very good friends that I'm still friends with today. And I think that this just really kind of cemented my interest in in how friendships can influence our experience, and how the environment can influence our friendships.
0: Did you find it was true for men and women that shy men also greatly benefited from a good close friend?
2: Yes. Yeah, so the patterns we found didn't differ depending on gender. Uh, the only gender difference that we found was that women had higher relationship qualities in their friendships than men. Uh, I think that some of this has to do with just the kind of values that, that men and women place on their relationships, where women tend to be more focused on intimacy and disclosure in their friendships. And those were the kinds of things that we asked about. Do you
0: find that there are any learning lessons for colleges when it comes to helping shyer individuals transition to independent college life when they first get there?
2: Colleges might think about the value of those pre-college friendships because they did serve to support, especially those shy students, and also just being aware that that shy students might benefit from from greater relational support. How can we maybe identify these students who may be shy, and can we create some kind of social environment that really helps them feel comfortable and help them helps them establish the relationships that they need?
0: Are there also ways that structurally, I'm thinking back to your own experience, you moved from one floor to another and everything turned around for you. Are there physical ways colleges can structure buildings, furniture, uh, dorm rooms so that shy students get to mix it up a little bit?
2: Yeah, I think there really are. And I you know, if I just think about the way our building, uh, our academic building is designed, we have a lobby. Uh, and I see a lot of our psychology students hanging out. They've got some chairs. They're set up in a way that kind of uh, encourage conversation and discussion. and And it seems like a place where students really bond. And I can could see that being a place where, you know, a more introverted or shy student um might be able to go and connect with some of their peers outside of the classroom. So, I think those kind of common shared spaces can be really important um, in in helping students make friends.
0: What do you think the best predictor of friendship is for finding someone you could be friends with?
2: I think that proximity is is certainly a very important one. Um just being around someone um makes you more likely to to be friends than if you you don't run into them. Um but another thing that we consistently find in the literature is is similarity is very important um, in predicting any kind of of relationship. Uh, So so if we think about how this might translate into helping students, you know, getting students together with other students who have similar interests uh, or things in common has the potential to really make a big difference in terms of helping them make friends. We found that it's the quality of friendship that matters, not necessarily – who your friend is, if it's the same or a different friend. Uh, So if your friends aren't giving you positive things, they're not somebody that you can trust or rely on, students are much better off finding somebody else who can provide them the support rather than kind of hanging on to a friendship that's not really giving them what they need.
0: Madeline Schell is a professor of psychology at the University of Virginia, College at Wise. Coming up next, moving back home to teach. This interview originally aired in February of 2020. Growing up on the eastern shore next to the Atlantic Ocean, Christina Duffman often felt isolated and separated from her community, She moved away for a while, but she's come back to teach English and to help build a more inclusive community at Eastern Shore Community College. Before we start, one note: Christina describes being called a racial slur and uses that word multiple times. Christina, you have a unique background in the rural community college where you teach. You've said there are lots of people who assume you're not actually from there, but you are.
1: Share a little bit about your upbringing and the background of your parents. My father is uh, Caucasian, and my mother is Chinese-Thai. My father, William, was drafted into the Vietnam War while he was attending Virginia Commonwealth University his first year, and he was stationed in Thailand. And one of his experiences was meeting my mother and falling in love with her. And eventually, he married her in Thailand. My brother was born there. And uh, then he was sent home. My father wanted my mother to uh, come back to America, um, where he was then stationed uh, in California, where I was born, at Fort Ord um, Military Hospital. Then eventually, um, he became homesick, and he wanted to move back to uh, the eastern shore of Virginia. Unfortunately, uh, my mother was not welcome, nor my brother, nor I for that matter, were welcome with open arms because— we looked so much like the enemy at that time. Again, this is a rural area surrounded by the Atlantic Ocean and Chesapeake Bay. And during the the late 70s and early 80s, there were not a lot of Hispanics or Asian or anyone who looked similar to my mother. This is how terrible it was. Um, My grandmother, my paternal grandmother did not... Want my mother to step inside her house. She had to spend the first couple of nights camped outside with my father because she was not welcome into my father's home.
0: It's so interesting and shocking to hear you describe this. But not so long ago, Virginia and so many other states were so much less
1: international, less diverse than they are today. Right. It's amazing to see the changes. It's a different place. From the one um, I had known and I, and I love that the people on the shore um, have changed in terms of accepting more diversity um, into the area that that's that's something that I I want to see. But people on the eastern shore of Virginia are still primarily Caucasian they're rural yes. white people for the most part. Right, right. On the Eastern Shore, there are still areas of isolation where you have a predominantly white area, right? And you, you have a predominantly African-American area where you have maybe uh, some Hispanics in this section. Or There are not many. It, the only place that I can see where we all fully interact with one, with one another is at the college, Eastern Shore Community College. So the students in
0: your community college classes, are they
1: primarily rural, white, or very mixed? It's very mixed now. And I don't just mean in terms of race. Um, I have military students. I have students with disabilities. I have LGBTQ students um, who are willing to share what makes them so special. I, I love that. I love that more and more of my students, in terms of diversity, are coming out and speaking about what makes them special.
0: How do you discuss race and difference
1: in a classroom? I like to think I have an advantage because growing up on the shore, uh, and I, and I still do. Um, there are some people who are, who have been racist toward me or, or call me a racial slur, and I'm I'm big enough now, and I know enough now that. Um, it's because of their lifestyle, the way they grew up, and, and that's their their worldview. I feel sorry <laughs> for these people, um, but having been through all that, okay, as a child, um, and even now as an adult, I feel like I, I've gained enough perspective to discuss racism, um, because if we don't discuss racism, how else will people become educated about other cultures, about other races? Because in my, it, from my perspective, most people who who made these racial slurs sometimes they don't know better. They don't know any better. Uh, they repeat what they've learned from home, right, um, or from their friends, and they don't educate themselves. Can you? Take- and I, I feel like it's up to me. Excuse me. I'm sorry, <laughs> but I feel like it's up to me. Um, to put everything on the table and let's just discuss what makes us different and why are people, uh, or why are some people, uh, adverse? Do you find your students
0: love this open conversation where it's it's easy and okay to talk about this difference? Yes.
1: Yes. At first, it was like, wow, some of the students' faces were like, they were <laughs> their eyes, oh my gosh, so bewildered. They were like, wow, we're going to talk about this? Okay, <laughs> let's talk. Um, and I have an example. This is a story that I usually open up with my students whenever we began talking about uh, racial stereotypes. Back in 2005, I was teaching at Tidewater Community College in Norfolk, Virginia. I'll never forget this. I had a student walk into my office before class and she said, uh, is it okay if I have a friend come to uh, your class? I have to take her to the airport so she can fly back to New York. And I said, sure, no problem. So I walk into the classroom and my student, she sits right in the first row and I'm I'm calling out the names on my roster. And uh, while I am calling out my students' names, I could hear her friend whisper to her, okay, they were sitting close by, right, right at front. Her friend turned to her and said, oh my gosh, your teacher has some pretty chinky eyes. And I don't think anyone else in the class heard what she said, but I know I heard it. And I thought to myself, what, did she really say that? And then, right when I was just going to dismiss it, thinking, "Okay, maybe she didn't mean to say it," she said it again. She goes, "I cannot. I've never seen someone, a chink, with those eyes." <laughs> and I and I said, "Okay, this is what I was saying to myself in my mind. This is a teachable moment. I have to. I have to stop and and just address what this student, this girl, is saying." So I walk up to to my student's friend, and I said, "Did you happen to say the word?" uh, chink. And she goes, yes. And she, without fault. Okay. Very young girl. She said, yes, you are, you have such amazing eyes for chink. Oh no. (laughs) And I said, okay, no, no, listen, listen. So I said, okay, um, let me, let me put it this way. Um, chink is actually a, a racial slur and I, and you shouldn't say that, um, to another Asian person or really say that at all. And uh, I said, it's basically equivalent to uh, the N-word. And this student was just blown away. And she says, I'm so sorry. I did not mean to offend you. And I said, actually, this is a teachable moment. I was just surprised that you were so open with using that term. And she said, honestly, I heard it in Chinatown because that's how the Chinamen would refer to one another. She thought it was a term of endearment. And it wasn't anything because they were Saying it to each other. That's <laughs> why I thought it was it, it was so great. It was so it was a teachable moment.
0: So you were born in California, but you spent a lot of your childhood on the Eastern Shore. Yes, where you teach now. What was your childhood like? How young were you and your
1: brother when you went with your parents to the Eastern Shore? I was about five years old, and my brother eight years old, and my sister Angie uh, was born two years after we moved to the Eastern Shore. Uh, my father suffered from—you uh, would call it shell shock, or back then they called it shell shock—and uh, we all know it today as PTSD. And he he couldn't cope with civilian life, and unfortunately, he he went away. We lived in a trailer park in a dilapidated trailer, and um, only. And only is a little town of, I would say, two to three hundred, okay, a very small town. We were situated next to a a very nice uh, Mexican family who ended up helping us in terms of providing food, giving us uh, food, and then providing a job for my mother to work in the field. Um, Because my mother didn't know English at the time. She didn't have a way to stand on her two feet. And it wasn't until uh, social services caught wind of us that they became involved, and and they started taking us in, and especially when we started school. What jobs did they help her find? Uh, Working in the field, many nights, many days, and uh, sometimes it would seep into the evening hours where she would um, just work all day long. It was a pretty dire situation. We didn't have a lot to eat. I I can remember uh, days and nights where my brother, sister, and I would hover over this near-empty peanut butter jar with one spoon, and we would just (laughs) each scoop out whatever we could out of this jar. But it wasn't until um, later on where we taught my mother how to uh, write in English and to speak in English. Um, She finally got a job at a local McDonald's, and that's when things started looking up for us. Isn't that amazing? Yep. That's where she got her start. And so um, now I-, I am proud to say that uh, my brother went to in sydney College and in Farmville, Virginia, and graduated, came back to the eastern shore of Virginia, and he was able to purchase some land in a little town, and he had a house built for my mother. Oh. And that's where she is now. It's it's great. It's great. How did you and your brother learn English? Oh my goodness, Sesame Street. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, Sesame Street. Oh my gosh. Oh my god. I have to tell you this, okay? <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm remembering. It it's making me laugh. Um. Akumat Primary School, we both attended, okay, first uh, first year. I was so nervous um, because I didn't know how to, how to uh, speak English. We spoke Thai, Thai Chinese, Chinese growing up. And uh, my father was scared to death that when we started uh, school here, we would fall behind. And so he said, you are going to watch Sesame Street. That is going to be your assignment. I said, okay, okay. And I did, and I loved it all right? But I think I loved it too much because uh, school school started and uh, in September and I was still the quiet, shy girl. And I so badly wanted to answer the questions my teacher was throwing out and I, I just didn't feel confident enough until about November, okay, uh, when the teacher asked this very important question. She asked the class, who here can count from one to 10? Now, back then, You had to stand beside your desk to recite the answer. Raise your hand, of course, right? And a teacher called on you. You had to stand beside your desk to recite the answer. So hands shot up in the air. As soon as she asked that question, she saw mine. I know she was thinking, wow, Linda, which is my middle name, Linda never raises her hand. Linda, go ahead and count to her. Count one (laughs) to 10. And I stood up and I was so happy. I was so proud. And I said, okay. Everybody was so quiet. I looked around the classroom, took a deep breath, and began counting: one, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah; uh. two, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah; uh, three, ah. Uh. <laughs> what were you doing? Four, ah. Uh, so all the way to ten, and everybody was laughing <laughs> because they knew. Who, who who counts like that? Oh. They count, right? <laughs> One, uh, uh. Uh, uh, two, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> and everybody was like, and I thought, oh, I'm a hit! I'm such a great hit! <laughs> but I thought that's how you're supposed to count. That's so great! But I love it! I love it! That's my that's my uh, my favorite part.
0: Eventually, a local was it a congressman or another politician noticed you and your brother.
1: Yes, Uh, Delegate Robert Bloxham, he started this program called Project Horizons, which is a two-year college mentoring program where certain individuals are chosen, high-risk individuals, I should say students, are chosen to attend college. We had to keep our grades up to an A or B from the sixth grade on up in order to attend the community college for free. And that's exactly uh, what we did. We had a, a woman who no longer is with us, um, by the name of Jean Brookshire, who is the liaison for the Eastern Shore Community College. And I, I'll never forget when she approached me and, and said, look, you know, you have so much potential. You need to keep your grades up. And I thought, Lady, And this is growing up on the streets, right? I was like, who are you fooling? You know what? You? This is, this, it sounds too good to be true. It really did. I was like, okay, that's great. That's nice. Are you saying I'm, I'm going to go to college free? Okay. I don't have to pay anything. Okay. That's 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 a nice um, pipe dream. So I finally believed her, okay, when my brother graduated from Nandua High School he attended Eastern Shore Community College for free for two years and then transferred to Hayden Sydney. But he would not have been able to do that without the help of Project Horizons. It's so wonderful
0: to hear it really truly made a difference. Just wasn't some bureaucratic program
1: no. that someone dreamed up. It touched you. It, it touched me and it but it works. And it's still working today. That program is alive and well today. Which is one of the reasons I wanted to come back to the Eastern Shore and teach at the very college where I was where I was inspired to become a teacher, and I and I want to be able to reach out to those students, not just to the Project Horizon students, but to all the students who feel sometimes hopeless. Um, why am I going to college? What is this? How will this benefit me? Right? Um, or I come from this broken home where I, um, I'm the I'm a first generation college student. You know. It's just really worth it. And when I tell my story about my upbringing on the shore, um, some of my students ask me, why did you come back here? We, we want to leave here and you're coming back. <laughs> why? And I said, it's, be- it's because of you all. I said, you may not be able to understand it now. And as a matter of fact, you should leave the shore. You should. You should leave the shore and get some perspective. Okay. And then you want you may want to come back or you may want to stay where you are, but at least get some some of that perspective.
0: Well, Christina, congratulations, and thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason.
1: Thank you very much, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Christina Duffman teaches English at Eastern Shore Community College. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. I'm Sarah McConnell. When we think about college-level science, beach balls and scavenger hunts don't usually figure into the equation, but at Virginia State University, they might. A new peer-led program there helps minority students overcome the challenges of freshman bio. And later in the show,
3: Professor Helen Crompton on Teaching with Tech And the principal said, you know, don't run. And they said, well, we've got to get to class. We're learning mathematics. But
0: first, freshman year of college is a tough transition for everyone, but it's especially tough for STEM majors. Leslie Whiteman is a professor of biology at Virginia State University, and she got concerned. So many students at that historically black university came in majoring in math and science, but it didn't stick. So she and her colleagues, Cheryl Talley and Brian Sayre, did something about it. This interview originally aired in February of 2020. Leslie, of the students who enter college thinking, I'm going to major in physics or math or science, the STEM
4: careers, there is a big drop-off. Oh, yeah. So that's that's a problem, essentially nationwide. And it's not uh, unique to just the underrepresented students. It's more so because it's a transition. You know, going from high school to college, It's um, you've got some growing up to do, some, you know, becoming an independent learner, thinker. You don't have mom or dad or grandma saying, hey, did you do your homework? Did you go to class? So you've got a lot of things that you've got to learn how to manage on your own. So when you're going into a STEM field, you have the challenge of the content, but all students have the challenge of just, you know, being ready to, to be on their own and be, be learning in a new environment. And we pay a lot of attention to that first year because of that transitional period. I've heard
0: that as many as half of all students who are thinking about majoring in STEM discard that idea in college.
4: Well, you know, what happens is in college in that first tough STEM class, You know, um, the national average is 50 to 60 percent may need to retake the class, may not get through with the passing grade. And so you have that for many students, the first um, failure. Yeah. And, you know, having resilience to get back up once you hit that wall is something that it's, it's a skill that we can teach our students to have, because many of these students, they come to college, and they were the top of their, their high schools. They were the top students in, you know, everything they had done in the past. And so many of them now come to college, and it's a different kind of a challenge. And so, you know, they, they fumble their first time through. And so for many students, their first instinct may be, okay, maybe this is not for me, All right? And so we got to talk them down off the ledge so often to say, okay, here's what we need to do. And and so, you know, but catching those students is the tricky part because you also have to deal with the fact that in most universities, and ours included, those first-year classes are the biggest classes. If you came from a classroom where there was only 20 students and now there's, you know, 50, 60, 70, and nobody really is paying attention too closely whether you came to class or whether you turned your homework in or how you responded to that first, you know, C, D, or F on the quiz, then you can fall through the cracks. But how can you help them turn it around? If you're not already really good
0: in high school physics or calculus, isn't it too late by the time you're in college?
4: Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> there is something that we do at our university. It's called SI, a instruction. All it is a structured study groups where students outside of class are working with other students to learn. And there's a an upperclassman who has already taken the course. They've passed the course. They've been very successful in it. And they're there to not teach, but they're there just to facilitate the learning. They're making sure that students are sharing and going over concepts and, and giving correct answer to each other. And they come up with all kinds of fun things that I would – Never really do in my classroom, but they come up with some crazy ideas, things to do in these study groups that make make learning fun. Give me an example of some of the creative ways you've seen them do that. they um I had a I had a one of my leaders asked me one time to get her a beach ball. And so I'm like, okay, um, all right, where, where is this going? So I got to the beach ball, and I'm not supposed to be in the uh, the study sessions. It's, it's, a, it's what we call a safe place for students, so they can be as right or wrong as they want. There's no professor leaning over their shoulder and frowning at them. So faculty aren't in the room, but I did peek. <laughs> so So I peeked, and she had the students up standing around the room, And in like a circle, and they were throwing this beach ball at each other, and where the ball landed, where their hands landed, there was like a question or a concept, and they had to answer it um, based on where their hand landed. So, I mean, it was a fun way to kind of like, you know, review concepts of things.
0: Have you seen personal evidence that the approach is actually working, and students who came unprepared in some of these STEM courses are really turning around.
4: Yeah, we have convincing evidence. We've been able to demonstrate that students have taken what they've learned in SI and been able to apply it in other classes. So what do I mean by that? So SI stands for supplemental instruction because the intention was this was an out of class an outside of class an event that's to help students understand the lecture that they receive from their professor. I like to show my students at the beginning of the semester this pyramid is a, a triangle. It's called the Learning Pyramid, and it has, um, at the very top, the least effective way students learn, and at the base of their pyramid, the most effective way that students learn. And it's a little bit insulting to faculty, but the least effective way from anybody to learn anything is to listen to a lecture. I tell my students I could give the Nobel Prize-winning lecture of the century. And you'll walk out this room and, you know, a day later, you later, you might know 5%. But at the base of, of that pyramid, the most effective way for people to learn is to teach each other. That's the most effective way because now it's active. They're actively involved. So anyway, we've been able to show with SI that students who went to SI, they not only performed better on tests and in the final grade for the courses, we compared their performance, their GPAs for that first semester. So that's more than just a biology course, They're all the other courses they were taking, and we saw a pattern that those students that attended SI in biology, their GPAs were higher than those students that, were, um, that didn't attend regularly. So you might go, well, what in the heck is happening? Hmm. Well, that's actually part of our ongoing research is to really understand what's happening within those sessions outside of class. But what we believe, or at least we hope, is that they're not only learning how to study biology, not only learning content, they're learning how to be a successful student and so they can apply that to other areas, not just in the course where there's SI. Do you often get students who come to your office and say, I am
0: not dealing with this major anymore. It's too hard. I'm going to step down to something
4: easier. Oh, yeah. We, we get those all the time. Like I said, we got we got to talk them off the cliff um, quite often. So if they come to me, if they're my vi- my advisee and they, they want to do a change of major, so I try to get them to talk to me about, okay, you're going to change this. What are you going to do with it? Have you talked to anybody in that department? What is what is that involved? Okay. So to get them to kind of like, all right, take a deep breath. What do you want to do with this? As opposed to this, you know, hopping from major to major.
0: You must end up feeling so close to many of these
4: students. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, we become kind of the... <laughs> We go beyond teacher, we become counselor, mother, you know, priest, you know. We kind of firmly believe in um, what we call intrusive advising. We're kind of all up in your business. Uh, we, you kind of do get to know, know the students, you know, pretty well. And we, we, we care about them. So it bothers us when they're not successful. And it bothers us when you're doing the same, th- if you do the same thing semester after semester and it, doesn't work. It, it bothers us, and so I'm a, I'm lucky to be in a department. I, t- I tell people, my faculty members in biology, they'll, they'll try anything. You know, they'll try anything once if they think it will be, you know, useful, helpful for students to be successful. Students coming to us today, they're 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 unique. They they got their own way of doing things, so we kind of have to adjust to their new way of of thinking, but we got to bring them into Um, bring to them successful strategies so that they can be very successful.
0: As a person of color, a woman of color, who is successful in the field of science, in biology, what was your experience like when it comes to this? Did you have the same obstacles that your young students are experiencing?
4: Well, I'm lucky. I guess I'm blessed because I'm at Virginia State University, and I've been here since I was two, because my parents were uh, faculty here at the university, so I, w- I was raised on a campus, essentially. Right, um, and you know my babysitters were college students, and I grew up to seeing students in the academic realm. But I I went to a majority institution where I was one of very few minority students at the university. Period. But certainly in, in STEM, but I had I, I had what we call the um, cultural capital. I had family who knew how to support me and could provide me with guidance. But that being said, being a black female in microbiology, when I uh, went to graduate school, I was only the second black student to come through my area, which was microbiology and immunology. And I was the first black female to graduate. With a Ph.D.? Yeah. And that was, I finished in '88. And so, you know, I got used to, early in my career, you go to conferences, nobody else looks like me. You learn to adapt, but we have to give those, you know, those strategies for being able to adjust to that, deal with that to our students so that they can still cope. Well,
0: Dr. Leslie Whiteman, thank you for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason.
4: Well, thank you. I, I enjoyed speaking with you. Science is real
0: from the- Leslie Whiteman is a professor of biology at Virginia State University. The program she co-designed to help students learn science and pursue STEM careers is called Successful Transition to the Academic Realm, or STAR for short. Coming up next, teaching the so-called unteachable. Many teachers think cell phones in the classroom spell only trouble, Then there's Helen Crompton, an associate professor of instructional technology at Old Dominion University. She says phones, tablets, and games aren't hurting students' ability to learn. Quite the opposite. Helen, tell me how you came to embrace technology as a powerful teaching tool in your own teaching. Where did you start
3: out? So I started out in the UK and out of all strange places it was a school for severe behavioural problems. These children were called the unteachables. They literally came from three schools. They were expelled from three schools before they reached our school. So these unteachables were often angry, angry at the world, angry at what they'd seen so far. And I I have some terrible stories of what I saw of families without homes, without windows in the homes, all sleeping on a mattress and they came into school and they didn't want to learn. When I woke up in the mornings, often I I didn't want to go into school. I was tired and I had a beautiful upbringing and I had a beautiful home. These came from horrendous backgrounds and technology started to come in around that time. And I thought, well, let's give it a go. Let's try using it. And the students were suddenly turned on by the fact that, wow, we can use technology for learning. And what was it you had? You had a single early computer in the classroom and they would take turns trying to run this little game? Yeah, they had a simple computer, you know, one of the big boxy computers, and they just basically went on to this program, did this game about mathematics, and they would wait their turn, not often patiently because they were desperate to get on to take their turn, Um But yes, um, they were very focused on learning for the first time ever.
0: So when this light bulb went off in you for this experience of, wow, a computer program, even a simple one, lit up something inside these students, where did you go from there personally? You
3: eventually left England and -hmm. came to teach in the United States or came to study? I came over to teach in Chapel Hill, North Carolina as a classroom teacher. I did that for three years and it was very interesting because i brought a lot of the ideas over we had a interactive teaching programs which were again very mathematical and they were so they were so shocked at how we taught in this different way that i was actually told by some that that wouldn't be allowed in some schools and then others Um, I actually got an award for teaching mathematics because the students were so excited. One was caught running along the hallway one day by the head teacher, by the principal. And the principal said, you know, don't run. And they said, well, we've got to get to class. We're learning mathematics. Wow. Um, Wow. But they found it so shocking that wow they all decided to come and have a look what mathematics looked like in the class. So were you you must have been using a lot of technology, not just a smidge. So this doesn't have to be a lot of technology. It can be very minimal. What were you using? So this was a a whiteboard, an interactive whiteboard. But we use programs that help them understand mathematically and see it not just be told about it so you have building blocks that you can kind of put cubes together and do basic addition but for example one of the hardest things if your parents out there you'll understand this that how do they understand that when it gets to 10 that one mark goes into a different column you have a one and a zero you know how did, how did that happen And this literally physically showed them, and it showed them by having all those little counters, and then it showed them merging together and moving to the next column. And you'd have all these students going, oh, that's what's going on. So everybody was looking at a single board up at the front of
0: the class. They weren't manipulating
3: their own iPads. Yes, correct. They weren't doing iPads or anything. The iPads weren't available at that time when I came over. But since then... There was this transition to movable technologies, non-tethered, meaning they don't have a cable, they stick in a wall, and you have to be stuck to a certain place. This meant that all those field trips and things that I love, you know, if you're learning about um, ponds, take them to a pond. Don't just let them imagine and kind of work through it. Take them to a pond. But what was great is these technologies could come with you. This is, you know, phenomenal. This has been a huge game changer. We've gone from the factory model to, okay, let's all sit in rows and let's just hear from the teacher It's filling us with knowledge, like vessels with marble not pieces of knowledge, to now, wow, we are self-learning in many ways, facilitated by the teacher, that we can go out and find these things. What percentage do you think of
0: classroom teachers are really adept at using technology to make the lesson plan come alive?
3: Few teachers, probably across the world, 20% may really know how to use technology in the classrooms. But this isn't a teacher's fault. They, they get people in, they get principals in coming into the classroom, and it's like handing them a violin going, oh. I've spent a lot of money on this violin. I'm going to give you this violin. And not only that, I'm going to give you one for each of your children in the class. And nobody knows how to play it. Exactly. And by the end of the day, you know, you'll be all playing sweet music and it'll be phenomenal. So they feel like they've just bought those technologies, the the violin, that they should all be able to use it. But that's not the case. I've heard people say that for the most part,
0: America still is sort of saddled with an industrial age education system? What does that even
3: mean? And are you countering that? Yes, it's very much, I call it the factory model. I I think we're very much holding on to all practices that we try and keep and do what we've always done. That's the problem with um, technology going wrong in schools today. You get people wanting to use it, but they put it on things that they've already done before, like those digital worksheets this should be non-existent. You know, why are we having digital worksheets when you can do it with paper and pencil? But they're trying to replicate old practices. So we're really trying to use these 21st century amazing technologies for factory model teaching, which is not the way to go. If you walked in for surgery and if you walked in and they had all these tools, you know, they had a saw there, they had pliers, they had various things like they used to do in the past. You'd be worried, and yet you walk into classrooms today and see all practices and it's kind of, oh, OK, yeah, that's what, how I used to see it when I was younger. That's not OK. We can provide so much to the children these days, not just in how we teach, but how, how they can be empowered to learn themselves, because we don't want to just have them learning in school. We want them to be lifelong learners, lifelong to focus on. Oh, wow, that's interesting. Let me learn more. It doesn't just stop when you finish school, and we shouldn't prepare them for that model. So do you think
0: this next generation coming up is going to automatically incorporate really good technology into the classroom as these teachers who've grown up with technology are using it? Or is it something we have to be a lot more thoughtful about, even with younger teachers?
3: We always have to be thoughtful about how technology is used. And there is a major misconception that younger teachers are very tech-centered. You know, they they focus on technology and they know what they're doing. Don't they? They definitely don't. Um, They know how to use it for social networking. They know how to use it themselves but they don't know how to use it for learning. And even worse is the fact that many of those young teachers came through schooling at a time where many technologies like mobile technologies were banned. So they, being such good students, came through. They loved their teacher and their teacher was telling them, yes, put the technology down. Technology is not for learning. That was their favorite teacher that they listened to, you know, they're kind of adored. And so when they come through into teaching, it's kind of, yes, we put those away. They're not for teaching. They're not tools for doing that. When it's the very opposite, a lot of older teachers have not had that experience because technology wasn't there at that time. Yeah, but if you
0: give them access to the internet and complete access to their phones and
3: iPads, they're going to be totally distracted. They're going to be playing Minecraft. Um, If a teacher allows that to happen in the classroom, although Minecraft can be a great one for learning, Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but the expectation is, yeah, they've got the internet, but surprisingly they have the internet at home. What do they do at home? You know, we need to prepare them in schools for what to do with the technology, what to do with the internet, what to look at, what not to look at. We need to be as teachers preparing them to use the tools, just like... The, the way I always think about these, and people will say to me, yeah, technology is doing terrible things. Technology doesn't do anything. It's inanimate objects that, you know, they don't do these things. It's like a hammer. No one says, oh, hammers are terrible. They kill people. Yes, they do. But they also build houses. They do a lot of fun, fun positive things, you know, that we want to do with these tools. So it's how we choose to use the tools that is important. And we need to kind of focus on that a lot more.
0: Helen Crompton, thank you for talking with me on With Good
3: Reason. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Helen Crompton is Associate Professor of Instructional Technology at Old Dominion University. She was named an Outstanding Faculty Member by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, connecting doctors and patients through telemedicine to deliver high-quality care throughout Virginia, the U.S., and the world. uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia, Our production team is Allison Quance, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. We had help from Georgiana Reed and Todd Washburn. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.